Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 4. The Indian Ocean was like a soothing bath. Serenely, I swayed in the motion of the current, an undulating swell caressing my shoulders like the soft touch of a masseur's, releasing rising tension and easing the growling disquiet in my belly. There, the insistent indigestion that always accompanied a rising tide of stress or the presence of danger had lately returned and was gnawing my core like a frenzied shoal of barracuda. On that placid morning, swimming alone, I faced two puzzles. How to quell the instinctual disquiet that I felt about the sudden coinciding deaths of the two American tourists, and my simmering unease over Sebastian's explicit concern and his unattainable hopes so subtly expressed the previous day. But then the thought pause was interrupted. My phone was trilling. Claudette and I exchanged greetings, and I lifted my towel from one of the sun-bleached lounges at the end of our garden and took its place to sit beneath the shade of the lolling coconut palms. I dabbed the salt from my eyelids slowly as I listened. My sister-in-law, Agnes Laulam, I have spoken to her, she said. But you know, it always makes her uncomfortable. She's not supposed to speak about it. I knew the detective sergeant had disclosed operational secrets to Claudette in the past, useful leads conferred cautiously, not enough to impede a criminal inquiry, nor incriminate herself lest it prompt disciplinary proceedings, but sufficient to satisfy a sisterly instinct to help her family. I had asked Claudette to find out what she could, and now she was reporting back, faithful to her own journalistic instincts, those we shared to uncover truth. And what did you learn? I asked. Claudette said, She told me there is a criminal investigation. It's very low-key. They don't want to publicize it. They have orders from above to keep it tight. Just a few of them know. There's too much at stake if word gets out. And she's seen the toxicology report. There was cocodamol found in the dead sister's body tissues. Cocodamol, I said. Powerful stuff. That's right. It was found along with morphine and alcohol. But here's the thing. She lowered her voice to a whisper. There was no medication found in the villa. None, I said. No pills in their purses or anywhere. Nothing at all, said Claudette. They went right through the villa, sifted all the women's personal items. They couldn't find anything, just vitamin supplements. I wiped my neck slowly with a swimming towel and pondered the development. So the cause of death isn't in doubt, I said. Respiratory failure caused by what looks like an overdose. And as Tugas told us, proprietary drugs and booze. Nothing really sinister about Cocodamol, if you can find it, that is. Perhaps not if you can't, but morphine? Well, that's a different matter, surely. Who keeps that in a handbag? 
Right, said Claudette. Nobody that I know. Prescription only. Unless you know the right people, of course, I said. I heard the women were not exactly the shy and retiring type. They liked a good time. Sebastian had students on placement at the resort, and he said the women were pretty full-on and flirtatious. But there's something more, said Claudette. The police have pulled in Bella, and also the Villa Butler. Some Malbar, an Indian, I think, but I can't remember his name. Sri Lankan, I said. He's not a Malbar, you naughty girl, and his name is Nirved Bandara. Have they been questioned? Are they in custody? No, I don't think they had enough to hold them. I'll talk to them, I said. And did Anya say anything about a Rasta? One of the other reporters yesterday was talking about some guy seen with them at the bar. Now who's being racist? replied Claudette. She did say there was a local man they wanted to speak to, but they hadn't identified him and couldn't get much out of anyone. You know how we Seshawa are. Eyes and ears open, but we keep our mouths shut. And to be honest, well, come on, you need to look at that Malbar. Sri Lankan, sorry. I noted the shameless yet not completely unexpected inequality of her suspicions. Doubts and even open hostility towards outsiders were commonplace in Mahe. It was a nativist island mindset that was, on reflection, not very far different from those of less enlightened inclination back home in my own inward-looking island nation. I promised to return her favour of help when, or if I could, picked up my towel and wandered back pensively through the palm trees to play briefly with our dogs and shower. Two hours later, I was sitting in the moak outside Tropic Bodies, one of the gyms in town, waiting for Bella Caddo to emerge. She'd maintained a rigid routine when I worked across the desk from her at Say TV, appearing in the newsroom each day after her workout, svelte and glowing, though the effect was usually short-lived. By the time of the evening newscast, and increasingly obvious in the months before my departure, she was blearily distant. We all knew what she kept in her handbag, a never-ending supply of codeine-based cough mixture. It was bound to ignite comment when gulped by someone with no discernible cough in the secrecy of the dressing room. But she was the station's untouchable evening star, a rating success. On screen, she was a princess, the darling of the male population. Off screen, she was a working single mother with money troubles, so rumour said. I observed her leaving the gym and trailed her at a distance as she crossed June the Fifth Avenue, quickening my step as she entered a coffee shop in Palm Street. As if staging a coincidental encounter, I followed her inside, stepping up to the counter. Skinny Mochaccino, Bella, I said. I think I'll join you. I nodded at the barrister on the other side of the pastry display. Make that two, please. But I... Bella protested. My treat, I said, mastering my warmest smile. Haven't seen you in ages, but you're still getting away with it at 8pm. Good to see. Hoping that an attempt at British humour might not elicit a literal interpretation and stimulate offence. There's a table, look, 
I said. Let's take it and have a quick catch-up. It's so lovely to see you. Free coffee proved an adequate bait, and we moved outside. Lost none of your unique English charm, Mr Muirhead, Bella said. The newsroom is certainly, well, I can say it's a good deal quieter without you. Not a hardship for most of you, I would have thought, I said. How is Sebastian? Is he well? she asked. He's in great shape, I replied. And so are you. My word, you look like a million dollars. And that can't be easy, you know, juggling a job, motherhood, workouts. I like to keep in shape, you know. I have so little regard for those who don't, she said. They test my patience. Why should the rest of us sweat away the kilos while others gorge themselves on trash from white takeaway boxes? She had a point. The ubiquity of the white boxes and swelling waistlines was hard to ignore. It had once been unheard of in a country whose traditional fare comprised grilled fish and rice, but where sedentary office work had supplanted manual outdoor labour. Well, I said, perhaps that's a sign of progress for a developing nation. A full figure is a symbol of success, they say, here and in much of Africa. It's not success, it's a symptom of laziness, said Bella. A sharp critique from one with her own secret weaknesses, I thought. But aren't we all entitled to indulge ourselves from time to time, I said. Even you, Bella. I don't suppose you're averse to letting your hair down once in a while? She peered at me and frowned, her low-fat coffee fix clasped between elegantly manicured fingers was suspended midway on its trajectory to her lips. What are you suggesting? she said. I sat forward and lowered my voice. Well, it's just that I happen to know you were, shall we say, three sheets to the wind at Cateau Noir on Saturday night. Oh, that, she said dismissively, taking a thoughtful sip. She placed her cup carefully on the table. Quite the gossip, aren't you, Mr Muirhead? Who's been telling tales? The police, as a matter of fact, Bella, but I'm not sure they even needed to. By the sound of it, most of the guests and the entire hotel staff witnessed it. You made quite a boozy brouhaha after your little family gathering. You're quizzing me, aren't you? That's why you bought me coffee. I tilted my head. Well, maybe just a little. I'm investigating what happened to those two American sisters. You were seen having a full-scale drunken row with their friend. Well, it wasn't my intention, said Bella. It was all a misunderstanding. I do hope you're not implying that I had anything to do with the poor women's tragic demise. I weighed up whether to believe her. The thing is, Bella, I said, if you were there, right outside their villa, hammering on their door, and the worse for wear. That wasn't because I was drunk. Nothing of the kind, she said. It was simply an unfortunate reaction to some medication that I'd take. I'd had only one glass of wine. Medication, I said. Cocodamol, by any chance? Or codeine cough mixture? Oh, cough medicine, yes, she said, glancing away awkwardly. That's your thing, isn't it, Bella? Cough mixture. I took a pack of Winston's from my pocket, lit one, and exhaled a rich coil of smoke. 
We all have our bad habits. She moved uncomfortably in her seat. I don't know what you're saying. Oh, I think you do, I said. You glug cough syrup like it's tapped straight from that gog. Lakes of it. Everyone at Say TV knows, and you know they do. Well, they can think what they like, and so can you. And if you really knew anything about me, you'd know you're way off track, she said. I had no reason to wish harm on those women. My life is difficult enough as it is as a single parent. Say TV doesn't pay big salaries, as you should know. I struggle to bring up my children on my own, something you and Sebastian will luckily never have to worry about. That rebuke struck a surprising blow, reminding me once more of his brief hint the previous day, skimmed over lightly, of wanting an ordinary family life. I returned my focus to the face before me, flushed now with fury. So why were you trying to break down the door to the sister's villa, I said. Bella shook her head and pursed her lips, a confession brewing. I've already told everything I know to the police, and they were satisfied. The reason was, I thought it was where my aunt and uncle were staying. Unlike their niece, my relatives live the good life in your country. They are Sechua, and they've done very nicely for themselves. A huge house with a tennis court, two cars, and all three children educated at expensive British private schools. They've been, I may say, occasionally supportive to me in the past, but no longer. They, like you, seem to feel it's okay to judge me, and they'd asked me to Catanoir to tell me in person that they could no longer assist me unless I get treatment. They thought that was somehow noble. So you have a grudge against them, I said. Almost, one might think, a reason to kill. And they left the bar where you'd been having a heated family tete-a-tete. Isn't it just possible, then, that you intended to do exactly that? You were at the bar, you put codeine in drinks intended for them that were unintentionally served to the Americans, and then, perhaps, realising your shocking error, you wanted to wake the women up. Bella exploded with laughter. What a ridiculous suggestion, she said, and an offensive one. She pushed her coffee cup away sharply, picked up her sports bag, giving me a witheringly disdainful look, and stalked away, leaving me staring after her. I had a missed text message from Sebastian, informing me that he'd finished teaching for the day with an instruction to collect him from work. Twenty minutes later, he was waiting for me as I circled the school car park and drew up alongside him. How were the kids today? I asked casually. A handful, as usual? Not too much, he said. They don't mess with me. I know how to handle them. We sped down the hill towards Grandance, the ocean below stretching to the invisible shore of Africa a thousand miles away beyond the hazy horizon. Being uncrowded, unencumbered, being here in Mahe had always appealed to me. I think I've upset Bella Caddo, I said. I suggested she might have accidentally drugged those two American sisters. It didn't go down at all well. She chewed my ear off about the struggles of single parenthood. One has to admit she conceals it well. 
Sebastian shrugged. I wouldn't worry about her. She may go to church on Sunday and wear a hat to the market, but trust me, she'd still wipe her ass on a coconut husk. I looked across at him and we both burst out laughing. So many judgments I've heard today, I said. He shrugged again sulkily. We Sheshua don't like airs and graces. Simple people, simple life. We knock down those who think they're better than the rest of us. Some might call that a lack of ambition, I said. Maybe, he replied. Or knowing our limitations, life's sweeter that way. And isn't this enough? He gestured to the vast expanse of the Indian Ocean. Seychelles was but a trail of invisible specks in its midst. We only need the basics for happiness, he said. We fell silent for a while and I sensed he was thinking. I heard something today about Raz Robbie, he said presently. Not sure I should tell you, it won't do us any good, but you'll find out anyway. Tell me, I said, steering the moke into the track leading to our beach. He's disappeared. The police have been looking for him, but they can't find him. They picked up one of those leather raster bracelets at Catonois, near the villa where the tourists died. Robbie has her residency there, performs in the bar. My students have told me he was there that night. Must have been after the party. Man must have moved fast. We pulled up next to the house, and Sebastian jumped out. He grabbed his briefcase and headed up the steps, the dogs going berserk with tail-wagging yelps on the veranda as he petted them. For a moment I sat and watched this simple, honest exchange of affection. I was just arranging a windscreen shade over the moke's dashboard to fend off the afternoon's ferocious heat when my phone whirred in my shorts. Wrenching it free from my pocket, a text message lit up the screen. Perhaps the timing was preordained, perhaps it was happenstance, I can't say. But the message was from Ras Robbie. He wanted to meet me, in secret, somewhere discreet and private, later that night. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed. Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>